0: So we're well into the month of Elul, and um, then comes Tishrei. And um, on 1st Tishrei, of course, we have Yom Teruah. And 10 days later, we have Yom Kippur. And a few days after that, Sukkot begins. So, that period between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur is known as the Days of Awe, the High Holy Days. It's an intense time of reflection, of um, consideration of one's actions over the past year and um, Places where we should improve. It's an important time, therefore. It's an important time for us. It's certainly an important time in the Jewish calendar. In fact, you will have uh, some Jewish people who are known as Yom Kippur and Passover Jews because that's when they go to synagogue. Just like within the church, you have some Christmas and Easter Christians Because that's the only time they go to church. It's an important time now. I'm telling you this for a reason. Because we talk about our salvation. And our salvation is important. But too often in a Christian context, we look at our salvation as being merely... being saved but that's not that's not what the bible says sure the bible says that when you come to the lord you're saved but there's so much more to it and so much more that he wants us to see in it Certainly we're praying for our nation right now, and we should be, because our nation is dying, folks. But it's dying because our people don't know God. And until our people do know God, until there's a revival, until we have a return to the Lord, then the body that threatens to become a corpse is just going to grow sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And so I want to talk about preparation today. Because certainly we are in that time of preparation. Our Jewish brothers and sisters around town, or in their own mode of preparation. They're doing the best they can from what they understand to prepare for this this day called Yom Kippur. And they're not real sure what that means in a lot of ways. I guess at least they read their Torah and Tanakh, though, to some degree, hopefully. And to have some understanding, think about all of our neighbors, though, that don't know anything. Whatever religious persuasion, they claim, or no religious persuasion. And so how does preparation need to look for us? What does it require? You can go to just about any Jewish website and find... uh, their idea on what the preparation is for. I was looking at one, and here's what they have. It's not bad. I think it just leaves out the most important part. Number one, make time for spiritual self-reflection and study. This is good. We ought to be reflecting on the lives that we lead. We ought to be reflecting on those lives that we lead because you can have people who really do wish to do well by God and they find that they don't do well by God. Read Romans 7. Of course, the theologians have debated whether Paul is talking about himself and if he's talking about himself, what he's talking about. I think Romans 7... Is Paul before he knew Yeshua, before he had the power of the Ruach to help him to overcome some of the besetting sins that he just couldn't overcome, however observant of the law he may have been? Oh, wretched man, he called himself at one point. I guess that would be pretty wretched because you know the right way, you want to do the right thing, and yet you just can't seem to get it right. It's miserable. And so self-reflection, study, we want to get it right. Within Judaism, part of getting it right is just having the knowledge. Unfortunately, that kind of knowledge alone doesn't get you there either. Number two, involve children in holiday preparation. Certainly, we should think about training our children because we should live as people who are from generation to generation. Realizing that while we may have life today, that life's going to be gone at some point. It's the generations that are following us that are going to carry on after we're gone. And how are they going to carry on? How are they going to know the ways of God? How are they going to know how to negotiate their way through a world that's very difficult if we haven't trained them and trained them well? Every week we have this blessing over the children, and it's wonderful. But you see, there's so much more to it than just giving a blessing on Shabbat morning and then thinking you're good to go. No, what we need to do is really be training our children up in the ways of the Lord. If we don't do it, I'll tell you, the world is going to take them away from us. That's a promise. And we can't avoid that truth. Apart from the training that they receive at home especially, but also here, and hopefully in school also, although, boy, not going to find that in the public schools too often. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a messianic Jewish school right here where we could raise our children in the ways of God and where what we train them in during school. actually holds up what the parents are attempting to train them in during the course of the week. Our son went to a wonderful Messianic Jewish school in Rockville, Maryland, when we lived there. He was there for seven years. He still looks back very fondly on that time. It was a safe environment for him to learn. We loved it also because we didn't have to worry about whether the teachers were teaching something we wanted not approve of. In Judaism, there's a whole liturgy called the Yizkor liturgy. And literally, this is also a time in preparation in which Jewish people will go to the cemeteries where their people are buried. And that's what that liturgy is part of. You'll see many of the prayers being repeated during this time of year. And once again, the idea is from generation to generation, remembering where we came from And remembering that there's others that are following after us. We just had a whole study on Hebrews chapter 11 just not too long ago. Thinking about the heroes of the faith. And we found some fairly amazing things about some of those heroes of the faith. You know, the fact of the matter is we should be developing in the Lord to be as a hero of the faith in our own time. You know, part of being a hero of the faith, it's not a question of can you or not. God would love it if all of us became such as that. Such that the generations that are following us would remember us because there was something to really remember us for. I'm I'm oftentimes impressed by um, when Doreen mentions the art sites of her people. Because so many of them were important in her development and her becoming the woman that she is today, a woman of true faith and allegiance to God. And so there is a place where we consider and should consider where we've come from Hey, what would be the holidays without good food? Not on Yom Kippur, though. No, we fast then, at least until the evening, and then, hey, we'll have a good time breaking the fast. Plan a holiday menu. Involve the children in it. Involve the whole family in it. Make time for people during this time. If there's anything that I've learned during this pandemic, it's how very lonely the world is without our close relationships. My mom is rather frail. She's rather... concerned about the possibility of contracting this disease. She's basically a shot in now. I can call her, I can talk to her and things like that, but guess what, folks? That just doesn't suffice. My mother-in-law, she's in a care facility. She can't see anybody i guess my brother-in-law can drive up to the window and look in and say hi but human touch is such an important part and we're told you can't touch anybody right now got to wear a mask everywhere not allowed to even get within six feet no 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 it begins to tear at the fabric of who we are and I see some heads giving me the north south yeah it does because we need each other And so part of the fascination with food around the Jewish table at this time of year is for a really good reason. It's not just to stuff our guts. It is to be with other people and to continue to deepen our relationships person to person. And isn't there an important part of the work that God has called us to, whether we always realize it or not, where where our Messiah has not just brought us into right relationship with God, but is also working with us horizontally to restore relationships with other people that have been broken, I don't think my sister Evangelina will mind too much, but she was completely estranged from her brother for many, many, many years, like a decade, a long time. Then all of a sudden one day she finds a a note in her mailbox that obviously one of her brother's children had dropped off telling her that her brother was dying and that she probably should come to him. Well, she went to him. She prayed. She was able to, with the rest of the family, persuade her brother to begin the treatments that he needed. He has two forms of cancer. Leukemia and lymphoma. And um, so he was a very sick man indeed. Skin and bones. Well, the treatment has taken, and he's doing great. He has regained quite a bit of his strength. And Evangelina not only has her relationship with her brother back, but with his Entire family, also. They're doing things together. It's families. It's wonderful. The point is that relationships are so important. And where we see our relationships broken, maybe that's one of the places where we most need to consider what we're doing and how we're living our lives because I'll tell you, every time that someone has come to me for marriage counseling, If there's anything I've learned from that is there's his story, there's her story, and there's the real story. Relationships. An important part of preparation for standing before God, don't you think? After all, when we Pray the Shema every week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then at the end, we add that passage from Leviticus, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's not enough to just pursue God. We need to pursue relationships that have been broken between people who God has given us a certain amount of responsibility for. I am... I love the sounds of the holidays. And within Judaism, there are certain specific sounds that you, you expect to hear, that you want to hear. One of those is the blowing of the shofar. It's one of the sounds of the holiday. Calling people to prepare to stand before God. And look, that, that's pretty serious. You consider that the idea is that the books are closed at Yom Kippur. The judgments are made, the books are closed. So, what happens then? when the book has been closed and the name of a dear one is not found in the book of life. And listen, we ought to take this seriously. And I'm afraid there's too many people in the Western context, in the United States, in Europe, who they think about those who lack relationship with God in a rather abstract way. They never get around to the concrete. This person is separated from God and it's darn serious. So yeah, so far. What about some of the prayers, some of the liturgy that we recite? avinu Malkeinu. During this time of year, every year is added to the liturgy, and it should be. Because you see, it's not by our deeds, however good those deeds are, that any of us is saved or brought near to God. We have no merit of our own. We are people who were born into sin. And I'll tell you, divorced from the restraint of the Holy Spirit inside of us, oh boy, we're a real mess. Look at Adolf Hitler or V.I. Lenin or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong, who literally murdered their fellow people by the millions. I mean, Hitler was bad. Assassinated Stalin, might have killed 30 million. Another hymn or song that's sung during this time, it's from the Psalms, 16.8. It's called Shabiti Adonai. I set the eternal before me always, the Hebrew verse being, Shaviti Adonai Le Tamid. Another part of the Jewish service during this time are the achet prayers, the confession of sins, which is said ten times in the course of the Yom Kippur service, following the Amidah of the afternoon prayers of the day before Yom Kippur, just before sunset on Yom Kippur Eve, and twice during each of the following services, the evening service of Yom Kippur Eve, and the morning service, the Musaf service, and the afternoon service of Yom Kippur Day, once at the end of the silent Amidah, and once during the cantor's repetition of the Amidah, ten times. Wow. That's a lot of confession of sins. What do we have to confess? You know, there's some that Take the viewpoint that Yom Kippur is no longer necessary for us. It's wasted within a messianic context. Because after all the way they say it is we know Messiah. So we don't need Yom Kippur anymore. Then you point out the um, inconvenient little fact for that idea. That uh, Yeshua afflicted himself on Yom Kippur. And it's obvious, reading about the lives of James and Paul and Peter, the apostles, that they all certainly afflicted their souls during this time, during Yom Kippur also. Why wouldn't we do the same? Yom Teruah, we have a remembrance called um, Tashlit, which we go down to a body of water. I mean, it's best if it's moving, but uh, we take little pebbles or um, pieces of bread and we throw them out on the water and we watch them sink in. The idea is that we're remembering what it says in Micah. That God takes our sins and casts them into the depths of the sea. It's pretty amazing that our God does that. And I think it's important that we remember it. Finally, attending Slichot services, Slichot meaning forgiveness. And then finally, after this time of Elul, then on the first day of Tishrei, we have Yom Kippur, I mean Yom Teruah, and then Yom Kippur 10 days later. You see, this is how in the synagogue, those who are observant prepare themselves. I said before that this is all good, and I think it is. But I think there's something that's missing. Sometimes I wonder if sometimes some of us in messianic practice don't also begin to miss the real point of preparation. Preparation. And so I always like going back to Genesis 3.15 to look at preparation and what our faith really means. Because I'll tell you, we can do all of these things and they're all fine and well and good, But doing these things alone is not going to save anyone. It's not going to make anyone right with God. It still leaves us separated from Him at the end of the day. But in Genesis 3.15, there's a thread that sets up a preparation, you might say, by God to prepare for the day when he's truly going to make it possible for the ruptured relationship between man and God, ruptured because of man's sin to yet be restored. That the death that man had earned, that the death that he was living in, would be reversed, and he'd be, as it were, resurrected. This first promise, it's not anything that's real obvious. It becomes obvious looking through the pages of Torah and then through the prophets. And then finally it's completed. in the Brit Hadashah. But the promise was that God would put animosity between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, though he too would suffer, because the serpent would crush his heel. You see, this is a promise right after man had separated himself from God. Now, someone might say, well, Eve had been deceived. Fine, but Adam walked into it with eyes wide open, so to speak. So he purposefully, for his own purposes, separated himself from God because he had something that he desired and he was going to get it any way that he could. Whatever that meant. And so man was separated from God. Not only did man suffer from that, but all of creation has suffered. But that's the first promise. That God is not going to leave us to our own devices. That there will be a time of visitation. And in that time of visitation, he's going to make the way that we can be restored to God. And how are we restored to God? Well, we read in Genesis 14, 1 through 4, after these things, the word of Adonai came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Avram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Avram said, My Lord Adonai, what will you give me, since I am living without children and the heir of my household, as Eleazar of Damascus? That's a bit of a problem. His wife Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. They wanted children. So God has made a promise to Avram, and Avram is asking, Well, how's this going to happen? Since, hey, in case you hadn't noticed, my wife and I are quite old. At this point, how can we have children? You say you're going to give me an heir. Well, that's great. I've got an heir, I guess. Then Avram said, Look, you have given me no seed, so a houseborn servant is my heir. Then behold, the word of Adonai came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but in fact, one who will come from your own body, will be your heir. Great promise. So what happens then? God takes Avram outside, and we read in verses 5 and 6, he took him outside and said, look up now at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, so shall your seed be. We read then Avram Believe, God, and I. Now, we look at the word believe, and and so often what we go to is just a head assent that something is or that a promise was made. Just a head assent to this thing. It's not really what the word believe means there. What the word believe there actually means is is trust trust you see such belief as a head ascent doesn't necessarily require we believe a thing will happen but when we truly trust someone and someone makes a promise to us that says something very specific If we really believe that person, then we will trust them that what they have said will happen will, in fact, happen. That, in fact, it's already happened. Maybe we don't see the results of that yet, but it's already happened. You see, that's the nature of true faith. That's the nature of truly walking after God. We can do every religious thing on the face of the earth and we can do them very well and we can be very rigorous in the way we live our lives and without such faith, we have nothing. Later in the prophets, we read Isaiah 53 where where it's explained to us so poignantly about the one who would pay the price for our sins that we could have life. It's amazing how Isaiah 53 is never read in the synagogue. Isaiah 52 is up to verse 13, and Isaiah 54 is read, but Isaiah 53 is not... Part of the Haftarah portion that will be read at some point of the year. It just isn't. I guess it does point out some inconvenient ideas to those who have trained themselves Yeshua can't possibly be the Messiah. But then the time came, the fullness of time, Paul calls it. And he says, so also when we were underage, we were subservient to the basic principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent out his son born of a woman and born under law to free those under law so we might receive adoption as sons. Now this is really getting to the point of preparation. Because preparation has to mean something. And by the way, it has to mean something more than just being set free from the fear of going to hell. There's got to be something more to it. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm not going to hell by being in Yeshua. But there's so much more than simply escaping hell. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, trustworthy is the saying and deserving of complete acceptance that Messiah Yeshua came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. John tells us in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and apart from Him nothing was made that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overpowered it. The darkness can't really understand the light. Did you know that? It can't really grasp why the light, why the people of the light do the things that they do. All darkness can do is come up with plans to try to pervert and corrupt the light and the one that walks in the light. But Scripture tells us that the darkness has not been able to overpower it. I look at so many of my friends from the former Soviet Union who suffered during the days of the communist regime there many of them spending many years in the gulag, suffering, suffering, suffering. And yet within the gulag, ministering to their captors, who were oftentimes very cruel, nursing their fellow prisoners back to health, ministering the life of Yeshua to these people who were essentially condemned to die because the gulag was a work camp where the people were expected to work themselves to death. John continues starting at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made Through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But whoever did receive him, those trusting in his name, to these he gave the right to become children of God, not born of blood, nor of human desire, nor of man's will, but of God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. wow you see this is getting at what the preparation is really for it's to meet the one set by God who tabernacles among us in fact becomes part of us when we receive him as our Lord and as our Savior and then John finishes by saying, we looked upon His glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in John three sixteen through 18, we read this verse that might be the best known verse within... amongst all of those who are people of the faith in Yeshua. It's more than just verse 16, though. There's two other verses that really go with the passage. And Yeshua is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Not Not just people, but the world be saved through Him. Remember, when God created man, He created a creation around man, and then he put man into it. And he said, I want you to be the stewards of all of this creation. You see, when man turned away from God, his action was far more serious than just turning himself over to Satan. He turned the entirety of God's creation over to Satan. The one who believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe has been condemned already because he has not put his trust in the name of the one and only Ben Elohim, the Son of God. How serious do we take that? That we might have family members who are condemned friends who are condemned, co-workers who are condemned, that we live in a big world full of people who are condemned already because they deny Yeshua. Do we really care about them? And if we do, why aren't we doing more about it? Preparation. What is it for? And is it more than just religious actions? First John 5, 1 John 5.1 tells us, everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the one born of Him. What does it mean to love our fellow human beings if we leave them in a condemned state? without ever lifting a finger or or opening our mouths to, to do something to try to help them to find their way out of that condemned state. Not my words, the Bible's words. Condemned. Any who do not know Yeshua are condemned, we read. 1 John 5, 6-12 through 12, Messiah Yeshua is the one who came by water and blood not by water only but by water and blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood and these three are one. If we accept men's testimony God's testimony is greater. For this is the testimony that God has given about his son. The one who trusts in Ben Elohim has the testimony in himself. The one who does not trust in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given about his son. And the testimony is this, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Not somewhere else. In Yeshua, the one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have Ben Elohim does not have life. Some of us in messianic circles really need to repent of our desire to find a way to read the unpleasant parts of Scripture out of Scripture. Scripture the parts that warn us so strongly and so truthfully and so insistently that without Yeshua we have nothing and without Yeshua others have nothing. We've got to stop pursuing religious actions but ignoring the very one who gives us life. I've seen entire Messianic congregations essentially reject Yeshua oh they know the prayers they know all the right things to do But they've become so enamored of becoming Jewish and being like the Jewish people that they've forgotten the very thing that makes us who we are. And that is not a thing, it's a person, it's Yeshua. apart from relationship with God through Messiah Yeshua, through Jesus we are lost in our sin. And so is everyone else. We can sacrifice ourselves for a cause, but without Yeshua we are lost. We can give all we own, but without Yeshua we are lost. We can claim to be Torah observant and keep the law as best as we humanly can. And I say that because Nobody keeps the law perfectly. That's why those who think they live by law will die by the law. Because ultimately, without Yeshua, they remain far from God and separated. Yeshua says in fourteen John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. No one. No one. First John 2 1 and 2. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an intercessor with the Father, the righteous Messiah, Yeshua. He is the atonement for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Yeshua is the Messiah? This one is the anti-Messiah, the one who denies not only the Father, but the Son as well. No one who denies the Son has the Father. The one who acknowledges the Son also has the Father. And I'm telling you, we should be remembering. We should be preparing during We should be hearing the sound of the shofar, knowing that God has called us on Yom Teruah to really prepare ourselves to stand before God. And yet if we think by simply doing these things, without really placing our faith in Yeshua, then we're going to be left very empty at the end of the day. Terribly empty. I said that there's got to be something more to it. I don't have time today to really go into it. But I do want to close with this passage. And it's one that I read constantly. Constantly. Because I'm so concerned. So saddened. So sickened. That so many of God's people, they go, glory, hallelujah, I'm saved, I've escaped hell. But they completely ignore what Yeshua commanded them to do. Within that, because of that, we've talked about how we're to worship God, but we're also supposed to be working on our relationships with our fellow man. So in Matthew 28:19 through 20, and um, Miguel, could you go get the kids, please? Thank you. We read, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's our job. That's Yeshua's commandment to us. It's the last commandment that he left his disciples before he left this earth. We learned last week that he told his disciples what's going to happen in the last days is none of your business. But here's what your business is. This is your business. And it has remained the business of the people of God properly understood ever since then. Go and make disciples. That's it. Go and make disciples. If we're not going and making disciples, I don't care how wonderful our synagogue services are, they mean nothing. Last week we talked about The congregation at Ephesus, the community that was there, a strong community, one that certainly knew the ways of God and lived according to the ways of God. But then something happened and their love grew cold. And the Spirit said, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You know what their first love was? It was doing the will of the Father. It was bringing in the lost. It was reconnecting people who were separated from God with God. And they had grown away from that. They became religious. They became rigid in their religious practices. And yet they forgot that everything about what Yeshua did for them was leading towards them taking an action and going forth in His name and making disciples. You want your first love back? Then love God enough. Love Yeshua enough that you're going to do exactly what He's called you to do. And look, I'm not wagging my finger at you. I'm wagging it at me also. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in this season of preparation, preparation, let's prepare to stand before God to be sure. But if we're truly going to be ready to stand before God, then we need to be obedient to Him. And He has commanded us to go and make disciples. If we're not doing that, we're not ready to stand before God. And if we're really interested in our country becoming a nation of light, then it's only going to happen as our people return to God. And without that, we're going to lose our nation. But I want you to remember those last words of Yeshua. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He hasn't sent us forth by ourselves. For one thing, look at us here in this congregation. He has put us together. So we're not alone. More importantly, He's with us. Every step of the journey that He leads us on. So prepare. Make out a holiday plan. Enjoy food. Enjoy it with other people. Do some self-reflection and some study of God's Word. Certainly take part in Toshli and remember how God has forgiven us of our sins. Take part in Yom Kippur. Blow the shofar and blow it often during this time. And then go forth in the courage that He's given you, in the fullness of the Ruach, and make disciples amen that's preparation folks god bless you